Hey everybody, welcome to big episode number 200. This is your host Chris McClung joining you from Austin, Texas and I am super excited about this episode as I get to feature two listeners who have listened to every single podcast since the very beginning and their stories are inspiring. They also get to share their favorite episodes as well as ask me questions, which I think you'll be able to get some good info from. So I'm excited about this conversation. I'll tee up that conversation in just a second, but I've got two things before we start. First of all, I wanted to let you know about a couple of opportunities to train with us, including one opportunity that we're trying to gauge interest for. As I've mentioned in my last two episodes, two of our podcast training groups are open for signups right now. My base training program with Jason Brooks is open through the end of September. And then also our main podcast training group where you can train for everything from 5Ks up to marathon. That has opened as well. I'll include the link to sign up for those in the show notes. If you're interested, you can join us anytime between now and September 30th. Additionally, we are trying to gauge gauge interest for an in-person training group in Denver. Rogue co-owner Ruth England, who was my guest or one of my guests on episode 179, is living in Denver right now, working from there. She leads our women's only podcast training group that is ongoing right now. And she is looking to potentially start an in-person group that would meet Tuesday, Thursday mornings, and then Saturday mornings in Denver. We want to first gauge interest before we kick that off. So if you're interested, I'm going to include an interest link in the show notes as well, where you can sign up with your email address to let us know if you're interested. And then, of course, get more information once we figure out what that will exactly look like. So check out those details in the show notes, but a couple of opportunities to potentially train with us that we are excited about right now. Secondly, I've got one listener email that I wanted to read before we jump in with two of our longtime hardcore listeners. This email, I think, pretty well sums up the reason why I do this podcast and the reason why I've invested so much time in this since December of 2016. This email comes from Bob from Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, and I'll read it in its entirety. He says, I haven't been listening since the beginning, but I found the Running Rogue podcast in 2017 and have been a regular listener since then. You have a unique talent among running podcasters to find something new, even in well-tread topics. When I first started listening, I would see an episode title and think, what could I possibly learn from post-race recovery or fueling your run that I don't already know? I'd always give it a try, though, and without fail, I learned something new. Now I don't question any topic. If it's something I think I'm schooled in, I look forward to find out what I've been overlooking. Episodes of Running Rogue have an uncanny tendency to drop at the exact time I need them. Marathon-specific topics have popped up during the lead-up to a big race. Inspirational, purpose-focused topics seem to appear when I am deep in a training cycle and need them most. You always get the best out of your guests, too. You know when to draw a story out of them and when to sit back and let it unspool. Congratulations on the 200th 200th episode milestone. It's a rare show that keeps getting better while covering the same ground, but that's what runners do, right? Thank you for all you put into this show and the Clean Sport Collective. It's deeply appreciated. I got a bunch of emails leading up to this 200th episode, a bunch of stories about not only listening, but also how I've been able to help through the podcast, help you achieve your running goals. And I thank you all for sending those messages. It feeds me, it fuels me, not only provides inspiration, but 
of course, reminds me of why I do this, which is to truly try to change the world through this crazy sport of ours. So thank you to Bob and thanks to all of you for sharing. And thanks to my two guests who are joining me here today. We've got Jennifer and Jafar who are joining. We'll get more into their stories right off the bat, both inspirational stories And then we're going to talk about their favorite episodes as well as get to some questions from them. This is a long conversation, but one I think that you'll enjoy. So we're going to jump right in with Jennifer and Jafar, two hardcore listeners. Here we go. Welcome, Jennifer and Jafar, to the Running Rogue podcast. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you? Doing well for us. Yeah. Good morning. (laughs) We are good here. Today's the first day of virtual learning here for us in Austin. So surviving that and, you know, simultaneously terrified and excited that we're finally through the never-ending summer. But it's all good. Excited to have the two of you on. We've got two super listeners, as I mentioned in the intro. Both of these listeners emailed me and made convincing cases to be on episode 200. So here they are. I wanted to do quick introductions. We'll start with you, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Give us a little bit about you. Where are you from? What do you do? Sure, Chris. Um, I am from Kansas City, Missouri. I live here with my husband and my 14-month-old daughter. I am a lawyer. I work for a law firm where I do civil defense litigation. I represent mostly automotive manufacturers or clients in the technology and construction industry. So I litigate for them. I'm often in court or in depositions or in hearings. Um, When we're not in a global pandemic, I travel a lot for work. Um, I really like it. I've been practicing about eight years now. I clerked for a year right out of law school and it's a really fun career and uh, it's pretty fulfilling for me, but it can make running and family life challenging to balance all of it. So I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and advice on those items. Where did you go to law school? I went to the University of Missouri in Columbia. Go Tigers. (laughs) Nice. Love it. All right, Javar, what about you? Quick intro. So I'm originally from Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Texas. I uh, grew up in Jordan. That's overseas. And um, I'm a doctor. I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist. So that means I take care of patients who have uh, chronic lung disorders and in the intensive care unit. Um, I've been listening to your show from the start. I guess I uh, started running right about the time that you started recording the show. And uh, you're one of the the few podcasts that had uh, an outlook not only on the the training aspect, but also on the sport itself. And uh, that's what got me hooked. I love it. I am from Dallas area, Jafar, so I know I know Fort Worth pretty well. Let's talk let's talk a little bit about your running journeys. We'll go to you first, Jafar. You said you've been a longtime listener since the beginning mm-hmm. and that's about when you got into it. So how did you get into running and how did your journey progress? So not much of a story there. I, I never did sports in school. Uh, not in high school, not in college, not in medical school. And I finished all my training when I was about 30. That's right the, the same time that I got married. Um, every year, the hospital will uh, do an annual staff photo. So you have a photo when I'm 30 years old, 31. And when I was 36, we took the annual stuff, staff photo. And I looked at the series, and you could see a good 30, 40 pounds that were in that photo that weren't there when I started. Um, I wasn't by any means obese. I was just definitely not the correct trajectory. So the only thing that I could come up with was, okay, I'm going to start running, see if I can't uh, get get into a healthier shape. 
um, put on a pair of shorts and uh, some sneakers, and I went out for a run. Uh, I started off just in the neighborhood. I, our neighborhood was a rectangle, so I just lapped it a couple of times. That's a half an hour run, and you know, to me, that was a workout. Didn't have a watch, didn't have a GPS on me, so I didn't know how far I was running or how fast. I did that for a few months. I mean, every single day, I'd just go out. It'd take me about a half an hour, and then, you know, the pounds started to come off. I started to like it a little bit more, and it started to get easier. Uh, and then I added a third lap, and at that point, I was kind of curious how far am I actually going, because the, the only exercise I ever did was in my 20s when, you know, some friends and I would go to the gym. And we, we would never really run. We would get on the treadmill for 10, 15 minutes just to warm up before you, you know, go do your weights. So I actually took my car out and drove the neighborhood just to measure it out. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a mile and a third. So three laps is four miles, which in my mind was, you know, a pretty decent distance. I, I never thought that I would, you know, run consistently or even run that kind of a distance. I mentioned it to my wife. I said, hey, guess what? That, that half hour run I'm doing, it's about four miles. And she said, well, in that case, our, our daughter now, who's in kindergarten, her school is um, co-directing, co-managing a 5K. They're doing it to raise awareness in the community for autoimmune diseases. I think one of the, one of the teachers in the school was just diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, so they were you know, showing solidarity. All the teachers are going to run it. The, the uh, principal's going to run with the kids a fun run, you know, mile. So why don't you, instead of doing your four miles in the neighborhood, why don't you go do that event? So I thought, okay, that, not that big of a deal. I mean, 3.1 miles, it's a, you know, a little bit shorter than I normally do. So I signed up and the website said, go to, you know, Orange Theory to pick up your race packet. Um, I looked at my wife and said, what's a, what's a race packet? <laughs> like, like, don't you just show up and run? I mean, there's a packet involved. So, okay, so I'll go to Orange Theory and pick up a race packet. And, and you know, they give you your number and a shirt. It's like, well, this is great. You pay $20 to do a run and you actually get a shirt with it. How are you raising any funds for anything if you're spending the money on a T-shirt? <laughs> so I, I picked up this packet and I went, you know, showed up to, to run. And I, I don't have a watch on me, so I have no pace. And I, uh, you know, not knowing what I was doing, I took off with the people who were running in front and I figured, well, I can run harder than I normally run because I'm going to run shorter. A mile and a half in, obviously, I, I blew up. You, know, you can't sustain a pace that you're not training for. <laughs> and I jogged it in you know, just to cross the finish line, but I felt great. I mean, it felt, it felt really, really different to be running in a group. And, you know, the 5K is, generally speaking, a gateway drug. So uh, after that, I was hooked. I love it. And how did it go from there to longer distances? So uh, a couple of weeks after that, we were sitting at uh, the lunch table at work and two of my partners at the time, I was working in Dallas then, they were talking about a half marathon they did together. Uh, one of them wouldn't surprise me at all. She's you know, a little bit younger than I am. She's very fit and she ran in college and I, I knew she was athletic. So for her to run a half marathon, that didn't surprise me at all. The guy who ran it with her was both older than me and more overweight. Uh, really close, a good friend of mine. And I, I asked him, like, Adam, how, do you, how did you run a half marathon? I just did a 5K. Felt like I was going to die crossing the finish line. <laughs> and uh, he's really uh, sarcastic and you know, not the easiest person to, to understand until you get to understand his sense of humor. And his immediate answer was, well, when, when you run a half marathon, the first rule is don't run at your 5K pace. How about you start with that and then maybe you can finish it. And I was like, okay, look. I get that, but how do you even know what your, what your pace is? And, uh, and then he you know, started going over all the different training metrics and how you get a watch and how you, how you can pull up, and pull up a program. So that day I went home, I bought a Garmin, looked up the Dallas Marathon. It was three and a half months away. 
Uh, it's the first weekend of, of uh, December. So I signed up for the half marathon just to see if I could do it. And you did it. And I did it. Yeah, that's <laughs> quite possibly the best run I've ever had. Uh, that's it, awesome. Yeah, I, I downloaded some generic training program online just to see what I what I would do, and it, it was like. You know, run two miles easy, run a few 800 repeats. I thought it was crazy because one of the areas I'm interested in is, is pulmonary rehabilitation. So we measure our patients' lactate thresholds and VO2 maxes all the time. And uh, I'm trying to retrain them to get them sometimes off of mechanical ventilators, uh, people who have been on ventilators for weeks at a time. So I'm looking at this at the program and I, I wasn't convinced that this was going to do much for me. Like if I'm trying to cover 13.1 miles and that's the longest distance I've ever run, I need to get miles on my legs. That's mainly what I need, what I need to do. I don't know what, what all the track work is for. So I threw that away and figured, okay, I'm gonna, I, can, I know I can run four miles around the neighborhood consistently. So instead of doing six days a week, I'll do five and I'll add a lap. I did that for, a, uh, for about a month. I said, okay, now I'll add two more laps. And I just kept on doing that, which looking back at my Garmin now, that basically was the math method. Uh, it was just dialing up your volume, maintaining it at a, at a pace that you don't get hurt, don't overwork yourself, and building an aerobic system that'll allow you to cross the finish line. Then when I showed up on, uh, on race day, the weather was perfect. Um, I took off a little bit slower than I thought I could finish, and I, and I negative split it, and it, it felt great. Perfect. Well yeah. executed. What, when was that? What year? So that was December of 2016. Okay, so that was the same month that we started the podcast. It was one week before episode one. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find episode one? So uh, I went, my commute in Dallas was pretty long. It was about 45 minutes one way. So either you listen to the radio and completely lose your mind because they, they want to sell you stuff every 10 minutes or you download podcasts. So I, I listened to a whole bunch of different podcasts and uh, most of them are sports related uh, and I just, you know, I just hit the search button and I just kept on going through the descriptions of what they are until I found yours. <laughs> yours and a few others. I mean, I, that's I, crazy. Stuck, so you did something well. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. That first one was basically recorded on a lark and we didn't know if anybody would listen and it kind of blew up and then the rest is history. But I love mm -hmm. that. All right, Jennifer, give us your running journey. Yeah, I will. Um, there are so many similarities to Jafar. Um, I, I think I would say maybe a half marathon is the gateway drug because it sounds like you can have a beautiful experience and then you get hooked for life. Um, but going back a little ways, I ran track in high school, but a lot like Jafar just described, I, I wasn't super interested in it. I was actually quite bad at running track. Um, I think now if I went back and put in a few ounces of effort that I put in today, like it would have been a very different experience. Um, I stopped running after high school, went to college. Um, about my sophomore year, end of my sophomore year, I'd studied abroad and picked up a few more pounds than I'd intended to when I was doing that. So when I got back, I decided to... Um, start running, just see if I could get more in shape, lose some of the weight I'd gained. And I went downstairs in the dorm I was living in and just ran on the treadmill. Um, I think I started out at like a four and a half mile per hour pace and would just go for 15, 20 minutes and then get off and be done with my workout for the day. Um, that just slowly kind of gradually increased as I got better at running and was able to handle more time on the treadmill. 
I kept running through law school. Uh, again, just kind of staying on the treadmill would go down maybe three days a week, maybe upping it to four. And I credit that routine with getting me through law school. I found law school pretty stressful. It was hard. Um, I went straight through from undergrad. So I'm 22 years old trying to figure out what these cases mean when we're reading them and then sitting through the Socratic method in class. Every day I knew I could leave, I would go to the rec center at Mizzou, hop on the treadmill and just zone out, completely chill out. Um, And I think that endorphin rush and that just stress relief was huge for me and making it through the three years in law school. Um, I th- mentioned earlier, I clerked right after law school for the Missouri Supreme Court and got married in that same year. Um, my husband also kind of became a runner. I, I don't know if dating other runners is also some sort of gateway drug, but he started <laughs> running as well. Um, and so we'd both go down to a treadmill. Um, we started kind of venturing outside more too, but you know, weather is so hard to control and we had no idea how far we were going. So we were mostly just treadmill runners. Um, we moved to Kansas city in 2012 and I started my job at the firm I work for now. I love it. I think it's a great firm, like I mentioned earlier, but I think that was the first time I realized that this is the job I'll have for a while, right? Like you don't have seasons like you do in school. There's not a semester with a predictable beginning and end. Um, And I was just craving something to distinguish time or make things a little different. So it was the beginning of that next year that I decided to train for a half marathon. I'd run a few 5Ks before just for fun. And I thought, okay, if I can do a 5K or a 10K, maybe I can train enough to do 13.1 miles. So um, I made a few shifts with my training. I was making sure to get up and run in the morning, still mostly on the treadmill. Um, I think I downloaded a coolrunnings.com training program. I don't know if anybody else remembers that website <laughs> or still uses it maybe. Uh, but I downloaded like a kind of beginner half marathon program and it was more miles than I'd ever run before. I think I was maybe running five times a week, three miles a day. So like total 15 miles. And it starts out with like, okay, you're going to run an eight mile long run. And I'm like, okay, I, I can double or more than double my daily run. Let's, let's try this. So uh, I signed up for the the Kansas City Marathon, the half marathon distance that fall and went out with this goal to run two hours. I'm like, I think I can run a two hour race uh, in a half marathon. I, I kind of like Jafar said, had a beautiful run. It was gorgeous weather. It was that first kind of cool fall day when I'd been running some outside um, on hills and some inside on a treadmill. and I went out and I ran a 147 in that first half marathon and I was hooked. (laughs) It was just an amazing feeling doing that. That's an amazing first half. Well done. Thank you. Thanks. I I think I'm still proud of that. Um, And maybe I I went too, it it went too well because I spent like the next year trying to get a sub 145 half marathon and it took a year to get it. It took a really long time. Yeah. And then I know you've eventually now moved up to the marathon. So when did you start thinking about that? Yeah, I did. Um, Chris, I think you and I ran the Chicago marathon as our first marathons. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I, I finally reached that goal of getting a sub 145 half. I think I did that spring of 2015. And I think I, 
you know, I was hooked on this process of training. I liked that idea. And so I said, okay, I've run several half marathons now. Let's try the marathon. And I would tell everyone around me, like, I'm going to try it once. I'm going to go run it to see if I can do it. And that'll be it, right? Like, just check it off the list, off the bucket list. Um, I signed up for Chicago and actually it was a lottery. So I had to get in, um, a friend of mine also signed up. We both got in, we kind of set off on our training. I downloaded whatever cool runnings program there was for a beginner marathon training. Um, I think it recommended some speed work and I dismissed that. I said, no, let's just focus on getting the daily runs in getting long runs in. Um, I think it upped, um, like a midweek run to maybe an eight or 10 miles. So I was going to focus on making sure I hit that, hit the other easy days and then get those long, long runs in on the weekend. So I did all of that. I went to Chicago in 2015 with a goal of, I mean, you shouldn't set a goal for your first marathon. We all know this, like the goal should be to finish, but I had the secret goal of a sub four hour marathon. I said, maybe I can do that. Like I set my goal for my first half marathon at sub two hours and I killed it. Um, maybe I can do the same for the marathon. They, they don't work the same way <laughs> as we all know. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so I ran, I ran Chicago. I just busted out of the gates. I mean, it was my first big marathon experience. There were so many people running. It's a beautiful morning. I think I ran like an eight minute mile in mile three. That's not smart at all. <laughs> um, I was, it got warm that day. So I was struggling, um, running through the South side, just the sun coming down. I was walking quite a bit. Um, but I came in at four hours and 56 seconds. Oh no. <laughs> oh, <wow>. so, <laughs> close to my goal, close enough <laughs> to like kind of kick myself for going out too fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, it was a nice way to get that get that first marathon done. <laughs> Have you run a marathon yet, Javar? So I've done two. Uh, both of them were in Chicago uh, last year and the year before. Um, I'm originally uh, Palestinian. My father's Palestinian. And uh, one of the charities that uh, is a partner of the Chicago Marathon is the Palestine Children Relief Fund. So they uh, raise money for health care for children in the Middle East, basically, for refugee children. And uh, I, did, I did the Chicago Marathon with them twice, uh, last year and the year before. Um, that course is pretty, can, that course can be pretty tricky because the first half in particular is really blazing fast and you can easily run an eight minute mile and get cleared away at, at mile three or four. The GPS doesn't work. So if you, if you don't know what it feels like to run an eight minute mile and you're going off your watch, it, it, it doesn't correlate with the mile markers at all. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I can see how you can, can throw down an eight minute mile with the excitement of the, of the spectators and the, and the crowds. Uh, but yeah, I, I've done Chicago twice, um, way slower than what you ran. Uh, I, the first one, I didn't really train for it. It was more on, on a lark. Uh, I, I mean, I, I did put in the work. I, I knew it was going to hurt. And I, uh, I think I ran it in a 447 or something like that. It was, it was, it was just under five hours. Uh, last year, I did a 416 um, and felt a little bit better uh, finishing nice. it. But, uh, but yeah, those are the, those are the two, uh, two marathons I've done. I signed up with them, you know, the same charity this year, but obviously you know, they, they got canceled. And uh, so those were all on hold. Yes. I know, Jennifer, you've fast forwarding now through your journey. You qualified for Boston, running a big PR. 
at some point in your journey and was supposed to do your first Boston right in the spring, but that didn't happen. So now you've got your virtual one this week. Is that right? That's exactly right, Chris. Um, <laughs> what what an interesting world we live in these days. Um, my my Boston journey has been full of stops and starts, but you know it's a it's a fun journey and it'll be a story I always get to tell. Uh, you're you're exactly right. I ran a big PR. Well, after I ran Chicago, I was like, that's it. I'm done forever, right? I've checked the marathon off the list. I don't have to do that again. I came out with some IT band syndrome. Um, just my knee hurt, my hips hurt. And I spent the next year kind of running. Like I'd go out and sign up for a half marathon, but not really train and do it right. And, you know, that just leads to kind of disappointing feelings. You don't feel good running that way. Um I, I lost my dad in early 2016, and that kind of shifted focus away from running and work more to family and making sure my mom and sister and I, you know, that we were bonded and together. Um, but it was later that year, and then kind of early 2017, I, I was able to focus more on myself and get back into running. Um, that spring of 2017, I ran three half marathons over the space of like five weeks. It was a, a series they put together here in the region called the Heartland Series. And all three half marathons, I'll remind you, I wasn't really training for them. They all fell sub 145, like between 141 and 143, I think. I'm like, man, maybe if I worked a little harder at this, I could qualify for Boston. Like that little inkling was in my head even though I said I wasn't going to run another marathon. It also turned 30 in that time. So I was looking for just kind of a bucket list item. What can I do now that I'm 30 years old? Is there something, you know, big and exciting, big goal that makes me nervous that I could take on? So I, I got serious about it. I researched coaches in the area. I hired a coach in the summer of 2017, um, Casey Endurance here in the area, and started my first speed work and that intentional kind of stress rest cycle. And I ran Indianapolis Monumental in the fall of that year. Um, and that is where I qualified for Boston for the first time. I ran a 331. So I took exactly 30 minutes off my marathon time. Um, I was absolutely thrilled. I was, I was shocked. I didn't think I could do it, especially when one training cycle. Um, it was really, really fun to do that. But as the story with Boston goes, sometimes um, when I applied to get in the next September, so I'd qualified in 17, but it was for the 2019 race. Uh, when I applied to get in, the cutoff was more than the buffer I had. So I had to run under 335 to qualify. And then the buffer, you needed to run like almost five minutes under that to get into the race. So I did not make it in for the 2019 mm. Boston. That's rough, but you got in. I did the following yeah. year. Yeah, so I continued to train, and again, this is where that that gateway drug comes into play. Um, I I loved it. I love training with my coach and with our team. I think Jafar mentioned it. Like running with a group is so fun, and having this routine in place of Tuesday night workouts, Saturday morning long runs, knowing my crew is going to be out there, and I need to get up and meet them. And watching everyone achieve goals along the way, it was addicting to me. It was something I really wanted to do. So I ran two more marathons. I ran one in the spring of 2018. And then again, in the fall, I ran Indianapolis Monumental. And I ran a 323 that fall. So I had wow. 
yeah, I, I think I was kind of fired up when I didn't get into <laughs> Boston. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, you didn't want me then. Let's just, let's try to knock <laughs> this out of the bad. water. <laughs> plenty of buffer, plenty of buffer that time. Yeah, but they had just lowered the qualifying time too. So it went from yep. a 3.35 to a 3.30. Um, so we knew we needed to get under 3.30, but you had no idea how much, right? Because the yep. qualifying time had changed. Yeah. So went out and... I think that was the best race I've ever had. I just, I had a great time. I've always heard about people negative splitting races. I was listening to the podcast by that point and knew what that meant. Um, but I had no idea how you would do that, right? Like how you have enough energy to turn on the jets at the end of a race, especially a marathon. And I negative split that race. And again, I'm not exactly sure how, except for good training and a good <laughs> plan, but it felt amazing to cross the finish line and say like, I did it and I did it right. And I was speeding up and I was passing people. And then I got that BQ time that it was, it was nice, especially after not making it in that year. I knew I, I had a really good buffer for the 2020 race. That's awesome. How, how did you find the podcast? I found it as I was preparing for my first kind of intentional marathon in 2017, I was training with the group, training with my coach, and I was really into running. I think there are times in your life when you feel like this is super cool. I want to drink up as much information as I can about this topic. Um, and for me that fall, it was running. I was just really excited about it. I was really excited about my training and really excited about running a marathon and shooting for a big goal. Um, so I was just looking for more and more and more information. I was driving everybody around me crazy talking about it. So I needed, I needed an outlet, something to read or listen to. And I think I just searched in Apple podcasts, like marathon training or marathon advice. And the podcast at that time was fairly new. You guys had a few episodes out. Um, and I stumbled across episode number five on marathon prep yep. and I listened to it once, I think maybe on a run. And then I came home and listened to it again with a pen and a piece of paper and took notes. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think your confession in your email was that you listened to the podcast during labor. <laughs> <laughs> to calm you down, which is which is funny, weird and funny and cool at the same time. I think I prefaced it with, I hope this doesn't freak you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's something, you know, the podcast is 200 episodes strong now. So it's something that I've been listening to for a long time. Um, and it's kind of soothing, right? It's soothing to think about this is going to be there every Sunday or Monday. There's going to be a new episode. I get to listen to it. Um, last year, I actually, when I ran Indianapolis Monumental in 2018, I was pregnant and did not know. Um, I think I was like two or three weeks along at the time. Um, it became obvious pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so I spent the spring of 2019 running pregnant and get ready to have my baby I went into labor on like a Sunday, my water broke. It was actually my birthday. Um, and I wasn't due for a couple of weeks. And I didn't, I didn't anticipate having my daughter early. So my water broke, we went to the hospital 
and they decided to just monitor me for the night. Like they didn't induce labor or do anything. They just wanted to see what my contractions were doing. Um, so I, we got kind of a free night in the hospital to stay and I was feeling pretty good. So we were just hanging out. I answered a few work emails and then popped the podcast in to listen to it for a little while. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I was listening to the podcast during labor, but it wasn't like the intense contraction <laughs> pushing time period. Um, it was just something that was, it was good to relax and listen to. That's awesome. So Javar, you had a big race this year running, I think 140 and a half mm-hmm. pre-pandemic and then things kind of got crazy for you both in your career and then, and then you, you got COVID yourself. So talk about that. How has this year been for you? So I ran last year's Chicago. Like I said, I ran like a 4.16 or so. And I thought, well, I already improved over a half an hour without really structured training, without a coach. So I hired a coach. And I registered for the, the Cleveland Half Marathon, which is the, uh, at the end of May. Um, I figured I'll start with a half marathon distance, get better at that distance, you know, break 145. That was my first goal. Uh, run an eight-minute mile for a whole half marathon. Um, you met him, Jason Fitzgerald. I think he has, yeah. he has the strength running pocket. Yeah, so yep. he, he drew up a plan for me. Um, uh, I went to, from running you know, four or five days a week to running six days a week. We did it in you know, three-day cycles. Do an easy day with strides, a workout day, a recovery day. Easy day with strides, a long run, a recovery day. We did, I did that for you know, three, three and a half months. And then the race got canceled. Uh, but they switched it to a virtual, which is not, you know, you know, not unusual. That's what most races were doing this year. So I went ahead and did that. Uh, picked a four-mile loop in the in the park. Uh, and did it with a few friends. Uh, we took turns, obviously, because we're not running together. The whole, you know, the whole social distancing purpose. And I ran 140. And I ran 140, feeling like I left some time on uh, on the course. I probably could have done significantly faster if I had uh, run the first half a little bit faster. Um, so I got a little, you know, optimistic and figured, okay, I'm going to sign up for Chicago, which I do every year, and uh, I'll have them drop drop a plan for me and see if I can see if I can break four, break three forty five. I don't know what I, what I can do there. A week later, I was working in the intensive care unit um, at our hospital, which is now, like I mentioned uh, to you before we started recording, it's a COVID hub, so the the entire hospital is just patients with COVID. Um, I made a mistake with my uh, PPE and I got exposed. Uh, and th- this was on a Tuesday evening. I was on the night shift. Sunday, I uh, called my parents, who still live overseas. We, we do a, a video call over Skype. And my dad, looking at me, said, man, you look, you look pretty tired. Uh, are you sure you're not overdoing it at work? Are you getting enough sleep? And I, and I thought, you know, it's, it's not unusual for me to come off a, a stretch of night shifts and look jet lagged. I mean, because you basically are jet lagged. And you, you get a few days off so that you can recover from it. I said, yeah, I'm just coming off nights. I'm 40. I'm not, I'm not 30, any or, uh, 30 years old anymore, so it's going to take me some time to recover. It's not that big of a deal. That night when we were getting the kids ready for bed, I, I, t- I could tell that there was something off. I was way too tired. Uh, and that, uh, you know, we, I put the kids to sleep, and then all through the night sleeping, you know, Sunday night into Monday morning, I was having chills. Uh, very unusual. Chills, then sweats, and just felt really cold. I woke up in the, at... 6 a.m. or so, took my temperature and was normal. And I just, I just drove myself to the hospital, went through the emergency room and said, guys, I need to, I need to get tested. Uh, I had an exposure five days ago and uh, I was tired all yesterday and then I started having chills. Uh, this is on a Monday morning. The first test came back negative. Uh, I still quarantined myself in, in the house. I, I you know, isolated myself from the family. I called in sick. 
my my boss said, look, just take the whole week off. You're, you're, you're working Monday through Friday and you have the weekend off anyway. We can get some of the cover the five days that you're here. Uh, just uh, focus on getting better. Tuesday, I felt okay. I mean, I knew I was still sick. I thought, well, maybe I have some kind of a parainfluenza virus, something like a, like a bad enough flu and I'll, uh, I'll get over it. I called into work and said, I think I'll be back on Thursday, uh, which I you know, probably shouldn't have said uh, because Wednesday I couldn't get out of bed. Hmm. This is literally 10 days after running a half marathon PR. I couldn't get from the bed in the guest room to the bathroom to brush my teeth. That's 15 steps. I had to lean against the wall, stop, catch my breath, sit on the floor, get up again, lean against the wall, you know, crawl like a baby, just trying to get to the bathroom. Hmm. Uh, so loaded up on caffeine and sugar. Somehow I found a way to get to the car and drive to the hospital for the drive through test. That came back positive and uh, I immediately went to a hotel. So the hospital where I work, they have a deal with the hotels in the region to uh, set aside rooms for quarantine for healthcare providers who need to be quarantined, uh, both for people who are sick or for people who are working with COVID patients who have vulnerable you know, family members. Uh, you know, one of our nurses, her, you know, her husband is going through chemotherapy, so she can't, she can't go home. Hmm. And she's been spending you know, weeks at a time in a hotel. So I went to the hotel on uh, Wednesday night going into Thursday, I think, uh, and it was pretty rough. They were supposed to be able to take care of you, where you know they they bring you three meals a day to the hotel, and you know they can't come in the room, so they had to leave it at the door. Uh, I couldn't get to the food. I mean, I actually couldn't get from the bed to the hotel room door, get the food, and set it up on a table. It, and, and I literally had two rooms. It was just the you know bedroom and living room in the hotel. Uh, I couldn't make that that trip without stopping, catching my breath, sitting on the floor leaning against, against the wall. And by the time I sit down to eat, I'm too tired to chew. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was just miserable. I did, this whole time, though, I wasn't short of breath. I didn't have a fever. I still you know, felt like I was okay. Until Saturday evening, uh, that's when I started to get the fever. Uh, it hit 102, 102 plus, uh, and I started getting really terrible sweats. Uh, that continued for 48 hours until my boss literally called and said, if you don't call 911, I will. Uh, you can't just sit there withering away in the hotel room. I mean, if you're not able to eat and you're not able to get out of bed, you're just going to get dehydrated and then uh, I don't want to come in and find you passed out. Mm. Uh, so I brought myself to the emergency room. My temperature was 103.6 when I got to the ER. I had taken Tylenol in the hotel. It, it just wasn't working. They packed me with ice. That, and that actually felt great for the first time since I got sick. That actually felt like it did something for me. They just covered me entirely in ice, uh, packed every, every skin fold. Uh, brought my temperature down, gave me an IV, uh, and I felt almost human again. Um, you know, it took them maybe two or three hours to get that, get that in me. And then they, they said, you can't leave the ER unless you have a meal. And we're not going to hold you against your will, but if you can eat, you can go back to the hotel. And I felt okay because once the, the fever broke and they, they got some fluid in me, I, I, I was a little bit stronger. I ate a meal and I checked myself out and went back to the hotel. Uh, the next morning, I woke up exactly the same condition. Temperatures above 103, just sweating and chills and just, you know, couldn't handle it. So I, I called the ambulance again, and th this time I just stayed in the hospital and got hospitalized. I was in the hospital for eight days. Um, the third or fourth day, I started getting scared uh, because I couldn't eat. I mean, I couldn't keep anything down. I actually had a conversation with our dietitian. Uh, I might be at the point that I, that I need a feeding tube uh, because I just couldn't chew or swallow solid food. Um, 
they came up and they measured a few a few different things. These are the you know, the dietitians, and they measured a few things for me, and they said, okay, look, if you can get down four cans of inchworm, which is a high high protein formula, it's liquid, and a few smoothies, that'll get you enough calories and, and enough water that we can supplement through your IV so that you don't need to get a feeding tube. Uh, so I did that for about five days, and uh, that's all I could keep down. Uh, I, I really dodged that bullet by an inch. And then I think it was Sunday night going into the following Monday. Um, I got a really high fever at night, and I was able to go to sleep. I woke up, and the, the sheets were just all soaked. I mean, it, I, I, don't, I have never seen anyone sweat that much. <laughs> uh, I called the nurses in and said, okay, I, you know, the, the bed needs to be replaced, basically. I mean, we need to do something about this. So they, you know, they brought in the aides, and they said, okay, we'll clean up your room. No, 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 not a big deal. Just uh, sit in the chair. We'll get this taken care of for you. Uh, it took them about 20 minutes, and that was the first time. I, I wasn't even paying attention. Like, wait a second, I'm actually sitting in a chair, and I'm sitting in a chair for 20 minutes, uh, and I don't feel that bad. Uh, and the nurse, when they were done, uh, you know, changing the sheets, said, well, while I'm in here, I can take your vitals. And that was the first time that my temperature was under 100, and I felt okay, and I ordered breakfast, and I was able to eat the solid food, and I left the hospital the next day. Hmm. Um, I still had one or two days left on my quarantine, so I couldn't go straight home. Uh, I had to be 14 days away from my family. Um, I went home a couple of days later and uh, thought, okay, I want to at least move. The last thing I want, because I've been in bed now for over two weeks, I lost 18 pounds. Uh, I need to at least get, get up and move and see what I feel like. Uh, so I put on my, uh, you know, I put on my sneakers, uh, just my regular work sneakers. and said, okay, I'm going to walk in the neighborhood. Uh, I made it to the end of our road, which is about you know, maybe a fifth of a mile and had to sit on the sidewalk. Uh, at that point, I just got mad. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even a rational response. I turned on my heart rate monitor on my watch. I was like, I'm going to walk whatever distance I can walk at whatever pace I can walk and keep my heart rate at 140. And that's all I did. I mean, I, I was able to cover a mile, but I would, I would walk, you know, 100 feet, stop, lean against the lamppost, sit on the sidewalk. I was like, I'm not stopping until I finish a mile. Uh, it took me almost an hour. But I, but I did it, and I did that every single day. I was like, I'm not going to just give up because, you know, I got sick. And when you lose 18 pounds when you're sick, especially when you've had a fever for that long, the fever dials up your metabolism a lot. So, yes, you're losing water through sweating. So half of that weight is dehydration. That comes back easy. The other, uh, the other half is all muscle. Uh, your metabolism cannibalizes your muscle. You don't consume fat when you're sick. You just burn through the muscle just because it's easier. Uh, it's a survival mechanism. The body tries to save fat as a last resort. Uh, so I was extremely weak when I left the hospital, but uh, I just didn't want to give up. So I'd go out every single day, walk anywhere from a half a mile to a mile and a half, and I'd stop when I see my heart rate get above, get above uh, 140. Uh, and it would get to that level just with regular, you know, slow walking. Uh, it took me a month before I could muster the strength to try and, and jog on, on these trips. Uh, and my wife told me, like, look, don't, don't look at your pace. Don't look at how far you're running. Pick a lamppost. Yeah, walk a little bit, pick a lamppost, and run there. Catch your breath, and then, you know, turn the corner and pick a mailbox. Run to that. And just keep doing that until you cover the distance that you feel like, you know, you got your, your, your work done for the day. And I, and I did that for another couple of weeks. Um, I don't know how it happened, but towards the end of July, I guess, it's almost like you flipped a switch. And I could run again. Uh, and I could run, just continuously run, two, two and a half miles. Uh, so I got back to running. 
uh, got back to running for most of the month of July, and then uh, August came around, and I'm and I'm feeling like I'm finally back to normal. But it's taken three months to get over it. Wow, that's a yeah. harrowing journey. And yeah, I'm you know I'm I'm known at work for being really stoic. Like I don't have that many uh, facial features. <laughs> like I don't I don't smile. I think my wife has seen me smile three times. We've been married for ten years. <laughs> Uh, and one of my best friends at work, he was texting me while I was, you know, in, in the room. He's like, how are you doing today? And it's like, you know what? I'm actually scared. Uh, he told me that that was the, um, that was the worst moment for them at work in a, in a long time. Like everybody's, but he said for us to hear that you are scared, that this is a big deal. Like they, they were, they were, you know, they were all pretty panicky for a while. It's amazing your journey back. I've had athletes in our community here who didn't have the same experience who had milder cases that were maybe even some cases pretty much asymptomatic and they've also had a hard time getting back to running without their heart rate spiking Mm -hmm. so to hear that journey is interesting i don't i don't know that i have an uh, i have a good explanation you know in my case it was pretty straightforward I, i just lost too much muscle so uh, the reason your heart rate, heart rate is, is spiking is because the capillary beds in the muscle are gone. So it, it just has to work overtime to get the same amount of blood supply there. Uh, but w- what you worry about with people who are young is it can cause inflammation of the heart muscle. So that one of the signs that the heart muscle is, is uh, inflamed is tachycardia, is a, is a rapid heartbeat. Uh, I didn't have any of that. That was checked for it when I was in the hospital. Hmm. Uh, but it, it's, it's definitely not a joke. And as far as, you know, you know younger, healthier people being asymptomatic, uh, that's one of the most important characteristics of a virus that will allow it to be a pandemic. Uh, A virus that doesn't have a lot of asymptomatic mild cases can't spread enough through the community. Uh, So this virus, a good, we're estimating, a good 40% of people who get it just never show symptoms. Uh, But they are more than capable of shedding and infecting people around them. So it makes it easier to to spread because people don't know they're sick. Right. The first SARS virus that came out in 2003, which is a precursor coronavirus to this one in, in some sorts, uh, it didn't have asymptomatic spread. If you got it, you got sick. And the most contagious period when you had that virus was six or seven days in. At that point, you're already in a hospital room and isolated. So the virus, by its own characteristics, didn't give itself a chance to spread through the community. This one doesn't do that. This one, 40% of people don't even know they have it. And a good half of the people who get symptomatic can have an incubation period where they're asymptomatic and shedding for anywhere from, anywhere from one to two weeks uh, before they show symptoms. So uh, the virus really has an opportunity to, to spread before you even know that you have it. Well, that's why it's so important to distance, wear a mask, wear a mask yep, all, yeah, of the, all of the things, avoid indoor environments. So I'm glad you're okay. And thank you so much for all you're doing as a healthcare provider at the Cleveland Clinic to treat those that are dealing with this. I'm sure that's not easy. That must be a tough, stressful environment right now. So it is. um, We are lucky. I mean, to to root for the home team. Uh, The way we've organized our hospitals in Northeast Ohio, we've designated on each side of town, uh, you know, based on zip code, really, uh, specific hospitals to be COVID hubs. So you can, uh, one, put all the patients in one area to you know, streamline your PPE. Um, it also gives you a chance to get more experience at it. So you know, if you're going to do something, do, do a lot of it to get good at it. 
Um, it makes it a little bit easier for the other hospitals to get life back to normal. You know, people still need cardiac care. People are still having heart attacks and strokes. Uh, uh, people still need their knees, knees replaced. So if you, if you collect all of the, the COVID patients in specific areas, then uh, you, can, you can provide the same kind of health care that you would to the, to the community. Uh, the, the problem that we would have with it is uh, there's a lot of Groundhog Day in COVID. It's it, it does get frustrating, you know, four or five months in and we're seeing the same things over and over and the, the same complications. And it's almost like you show up to a fight with your hands tied behind your back. We don't have much to offer. There's, there's not a whole lot that I can that I can do for them. And when, when patients get really sick and in the, in, they're in the ICU, my job is to basically keep them alive for a week or two until their body can clear the clear the infection. There are a few things we've learned, you know, steroids being one of them, remdesivir is a new antiviral drug that works for it. There's, I mean, there are a few things we can do, but for the most part, we're, uh, you know, we're, like I said, fighting with, with our hands tied behind our backs. And that, that, that does get stressful. And, uh, you know, to be honest, the, the, the one thing that, that keeps me going out to run and why I was so stubborn when I came out of it, that I needed to get back to being able to run, that's my form of meditation. Um, first thing in the morning, I can go out for a run and stop the, the this feedback loop in my head of just replaying the previous day. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but you know, when a closer goes out in the bottom of the ninth and blows the game, the the, the coaches spend all of the next day trying to get it out of his head. Like <laughs> you forget about yesterday, you have to have a short memory. Go back out there in the bottom of the ninth today and just forget what happened yesterday. And COVID is kind of like that for us because every single day there's someone who I lose who I don't think I should have. And, you know, stopping that feedback loop in my head of, could I have done something different? Could I have changed something with the ventilator? Could I have changed something with the medications? Uh, when I get out in the morning for an hour and just, you know, pound the pavement, that, that kind of interrupts that, that thought process and uh, it hits the reset button so I can go into work and try again. Yes. Cheers to that. I know, Jennifer, you mentioned running being kind of that for you in the midst of that legal career of that that break that thing that thing that gives you seasons yeah definitely um and jafar that's amazing that you're able to treat patients and find that way to release that you know anxiety and stress I, I, that's amazing thank you for everything you're doing oh thank you guys let's talk about the podcast mm -hmm. We've got, we want, I want to talk about some favorite episodes. So we'll go back and forth here between the two of you guys, kind of reminiscing a little bit on old episodes, perhaps recalling some for the newer listeners who maybe haven't gone back and listened to everyone. So we'll start with you, Jennifer. Give me a favorite episode. I've, I've mentioned it once, um, but I'll say it again because I just listened to it this week as I get ready for my virtual Boston. Um, it's episode five, Marathon Prep. I. I love this episode. I listen to it usually about two weeks before every marathon I run. Um, you and Steve talk about some methods to either associate or disassociate with the marathon anxiety and stress. And I find it so helpful as I go into a taper to think about strategies to associate and take some of that anxiety off my chest. Um, even just making sure I've got a full water bottle next to me every day. Um, writing down stuff works well for me. So I can write down my race plan. I can write down when I'll take my gels. I'll write down my packing list, everything I need to pack, what will go in my gear check bag. 
um, who I will see on the course and when, and when I'll take my water and fuel. Um, it's, it's an awesome episode to really make sure you're thinking about every element of race week and the actual race itself. Yes. And associating that's really just being about just to give the cliff notes version for those who haven't heard that one. It's about taking that worry and turning it into work and planning that you can do as you prep for a race. What's your favorite dissociative strategy, Jennifer? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not a huge movie person, um, but I do like just TV, like to veg out kind of in front of a TV show, especially one I've seen before um, that, you know, you know what's going to happen. So sitting down and watching a couple episodes of The Office or Parks and Rec, that is a way for me to just totally veg <laughs> out and not think about it. I love it. That's an oldie but goodie. So thanks for mentioning that one. All right, Jafar, what do you, what have you got? First favorite. Yeah, so that's a tough one. There's a, there's a few that I, that I, uh, that I could highlight. Um, so I talked about the Maffetone method, uh, which I kind of like that episode mainly because uh, if, if you look at what people do on Strava, it's everybody goes out to train and they're really, you know, racing on their training runs. And we tend to forget the, you know, the basics of, you know, how do you build an aerobic base? And I, I like that episode because you did kind of bring it down to, you know, simple effort base and heart rate base. So don't go out there and try and run your race on, on, uh, on your training run. So that was one. Um, I actually. Episode, wanted, 90, wanted, episode 97, was, by the way. I was, uh, it was probably the one that I, that I, uh, you know, could relate to the most because it's, it's very similar to what I, what I do at work. Um, but really the, the, the two episodes that I think were, uh, would be my favorite were the two episodes you did with Mary Margaret. Uh, that would be, I think it's 83 and 160. I wrote this down somewhere. Yeah. 83 and 160, uh, where you tried to coach her through getting her sub four hour marathon and then she failed, uh, only to have her come back and say, I'm not going to give up and, and pull it out, uh, on her second attempt. So I, that would be my, my favorite if I had to pick one or two. Uh, just because, you know, for the average person who has a life, you can't really uh, set aside seven to 10 hours of training every, uh, every week. And uh, just seeing someone go through a lot, not giving up, missing her goal and still coming out and setting an example for others, I thought was, was a pretty inspiring story. I agree with that. Mary Margaret. Yeah, I love, I love that story. Mary Margaret will be happy to hear that. I'm sure she'll listen to this. She's she's now a member of our podcast-based training program and a key member of that group, still getting faster and bringing that energy that you heard in the podcast to her training today, which, which is really, really cool. It's been fun to get to know her even better after those two episodes. But yes, 83 and 160 where she got it done. I like that yeah. story too because she failed in that first. Well, that's what that's why I brought it up. Like it's it it it, it has a happy ending, but it took a while, and there was a lot of work that went into it. So that's uh, you know that, that's where I where I really liked her story the most is that she didn't give up after the first failure. Yeah, yeah. As a coach, those are the most satisfying results is when somebody gets a goal after missing it a few times. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned that one in your email as well, Mary, uh, the Mary Margaret episode, Jennifer. What did you draw from that that episode? Yeah, the same conclusion. I I loved her story, hearing people's running journey, like how they got started, what they do. I think Mary Margaret, 
hiked a lot. She did like some through hikes on a big trail. That's amazing. I mean, she's a woman with kids, like taking the time to set this huge goal and do that. And then to shift and decide to go into running more. Um, And I remember you guys coaching her and she would say, you know, on this day, I'm going out and doing a long walk. And you were like, okay, why not just transition that into an easy recovery run? You know, like let's shift that and make it more intentional to really support your running. And she, she did that. And I think that's such a great idea. And it shows not only her motivation, how cool that is, but also the value of coaching and just saying like, okay, here's an idea, right? Like we're not telling you what to do, but if you really want to be intentional about running, here's a way to take an activity you're doing and enjoy and make it support your running goal. Yes. I agree with that. So another favorite from you, Jennifer. Okay. It's another older one. Um, the Wonderland trail, um, FKT mm. attempt by Mallory Brooks and Allison Maxis. I think I, I tend to love these kind of race recaps or big attempt recap episodes. Um, you recently had Jason Brooks on to talk about his Nolan 14ers. And I liked that one too, in the same vein. I just love hearing about the prep, the idea, the training, and then going out and these two women attempting to circumnavigate a mountain and do it in the fastest known time. That to me was fascinating. And Allison, I think, talked about like laying down and adjusting her own back during the run. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hold on a minute. I need to fix something. <laughs> and then she gets up and just keeps running. That's oh, so cool, right? I think that's just, it's runners, right? If we have a goal, we're going to go out and try to get it done. Yeah, 93 miles and 27 hours through the night. Self-supported, unbelievable effort. That was episode 39. And yeah, Mallory and Allison, I'm fortunate to have the two of them in my life regularly, um, even outside the podcast as they both work with Rogue in one form or another, but they're just two of the most inspiring women. But Chris, what's so cool about the podcast is that you bring them to our lives too, right? Like now I get to follow, you know, their adventures on social media and hopefully this doesn't sound creepy, but it's just so neat to follow them on Strava and see where they're traveling and what runs they're going on. Or I think Allison uh, works for Rogue and planning some of the expeditions, seeing what she's doing. That's, it's so neat. I'm not in Austin, but I feel like I know these women and it's fun to follow them. And it's, you know, the podcast that really introduced us to them. That's cool. Yep. At Hill of Life is Mallory's Instagram and at Allison Wanders is Allison's. If you want to follow along, agree. It's inspiring to follow their journeys. Allison, of course, three-time Olympic trials marathon runner as well. And and Mallory just does all kinds of crazy adventures as a primarily trail athlete. But really cool cool stuff. I love that you're getting inspiration from them even today, even though that was episode 39. So it was, it was back in, I think, September of 2017. So that's cool that three years later, you're still, you're still following their stories. Mm-hmm. Jafar, one more from you. One more. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to cheat and, and name two more. Uh, so 73 <laughs> and 74, just because they were a series on what is quality. Uh, and I think I wrote to you that it was a little surprising to me that you were able to talk about strides for over half an hour. <laughs> like, yeah. how, do you, how do you talk about strides for half an hour? It's a 10 second sprint. What's the big deal? <laughs> but no, I mean, that, that, those two episodes were pretty good because it, 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 it does, you know, 
put a little bit more you know, definition to the terms of what do people mean, mean when they say quality. So uh, a little more science-y than your average episode, but, but, I, but I did like those a lot. Uh, 73 and 74. Yeah. Uh, how to inject quality, how to do, make sure that you're running correct miles, correct paces, uh, you know, form. Uh, those two episodes were, were a pretty interesting uh, listen. Yeah, I agree. I, I I remember making that comment in the episode. I can't believe we just talked about strides for 30 minutes, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think, you know, it was all, it wasn't like we were repeating ourselves over and over. It was all pretty relevant content, but strides are yeah. so important. That's something I iterate or reiterate with everybody. If you're doing those weekly, then you're doing something right because that's just, I call it a little inoculation of speed, kind of like allergy shots that will just give you that little touch of speed every week that helps reinforce good mechanics, form and efficiency that will allow you to get faster over time if you consistently do them. So yes, do your strides. <laughs> it also teaches teaches your body to recruit more muscle fibers, which we kind of underestimate. Even yes. in your in your hardest hardest speed workout, you're only using about one third of the muscle fibers that are in your legs. Uh, mm-hmm. When you when you add strides at the end of an of an easy run, you're kind of shocking your system into, you know, forcing itself to learn how to recruit more muscle fibers in a hurry, uh, which will help you late in the race if you're trying to shift gears. That's awesome. The science is there for sure. Okay, Jennifer, one more from you. I'm, I'm going to cheat as well and say a couple because I think they're along the same lines. Chris, your recent episodes on running during the pandemic have been a lifesaver. Um, I think starting in March, I think it was like March 17th, you came out with an episode that's like, hey, races are canceled. What do we do now? And we we were all in it together, but alone. Um, that's about the time we started really quarantining. My daughter was home from daycare. My husband and I are working from home. Life just became a very, very different world for us. And running was the kind of the only consistency. And honestly, one of the only breaks in the day, we were either constantly parenting or working and trying to fit everything in. So I could head out for a run and listen to your podcast and say, look, other people are in this too. We no one knows what's going on here at this time. Um, and that it was just really grounding to hear that other people were thinking the same thing and wondering what's going to happen and not knowing. We just had no idea what the summer would bring, what the rest of this year will bring, and that it's okay to not know, but to still want to keep training or to keep running and to keep doing your strides. It, it was all reassuring to hear that. And then you had a few episodes about pandemic running, but 188 was um, some tips for marathon training in a pandemic. And it was obviously personally helpful for me as I did this marathon build for virtual Boston. But the tips were just really good um, to think about, you know, your world is different than it would be in a normal marathon training season. Um, For me, I haven't rejoined the group run on Saturdays because it's just a larger group than I feel comfortable with, especially having a young child at home. Um, but having a podcast there and listening and hearing that that's okay and that you just have to make adjustments, that really helped me. Yeah, I love that. Episode 188 was with Jen Harney, and she did an amazing job on that episode, I think, with a lot of those tips. So thank you. Thank you for that. You never know, you know, from my vantage point, it's kind of like this every week when I'm sitting here in my house talking into a microphone with nobody watching except my dog. And 
you just don't know if what you're saying is going to resonate. And so then there's this great fear of releasing it out to the world and, and, and having people, you know, not find it relevant for them. And so while obviously I overcome that fear every week, it's still real, it's still real, still there. And so it's good and reassuring to hear that things are resonating. So thank you. So let's wrap. I want to talk with, I want, I want to get to some questions so you guys can ask, ask me, you know, as a podcast host or as a coach, things that might help you in your own running now, or that might be general questions that might help everybody would love to get to some of those. So we'll start with you, Jafar. What do you have for me? What questions? Oh, okay. I've got, I got quite a few, but let me start with, <laughs> two, I'm going to start with two simple ones that are kind of related. Okay. How do you define base phase? When you're drawing up a program for one of your athletes and then you say, okay, I want to, I want to start with the base phase. What, what does that mean to you and how do you, how do you incorporate it into say a marathon plan or a half marathon plan? And, yeah. and the, yeah, the second question, which is the you know, flip side of that coin. Uh, if you have three athletes, one's training for a 5k, one for a half and one for a full marathon, and they want to do one single speed workout a week. What workout do you think works best for the 5K, half marathon, and full marathon? Good questions. I like it. So base phase, I think it a little bit depends on the goal. And I think we use that term as coaches sometimes to apply to a few different things. And so I want to, I guess, drill in a little bit and create some nuance there because there's the base phase of a program when you're kind of establishing your mileage, getting into your routine, your rhythm that will prepare you for more race specific training. So that's one version. Then there's another, which, you know, I have our podcast group with Jason, where we specifically focus on base as a, an entire training block where somebody might be specifically working on building mileage or specifically working on incorporating strength with their mileage. And so those two things are a little bit different in the context of a training program where it's just the preamble, it's just kind of the early part of training. So in that phase of work, it could be for most people anywhere from four to six weeks at the beginning of a cycle where they're just trying to establish their rhythm. And our goal for that is really just to get fit enough to train, which is something that we talk about around here. It's like, you're just trying to get fit enough to train. And it used to be, if you go back to some of the older sort of approaches to training where base was really just about building mileage. Well, we've learned that that doesn't prepare you for the rigors of the speed work as well. So we now call it more of a priming phase where you're priming the system for the work to come, where you're building mileage during that time, but also doing some light speed work, often geared towards what I like to call speed development, where you're doing some shorter intense workouts with a lot of rest and recovery to make sure you're not taxing the system too much. But that is giving you the stimulus that you need to recruit those muscle fibers so that when you do go into more rigorous workouts, your body's ready for that. And so that, again, typically is a four to six week block as a preamble to a full on race specific training program. For the base training program that I do with Jason, that's a 16 week program where people are just focused specifically on building mileage. And we have it actually chunked up into four different sub phases. So eventually you're doing speed work in that program as well. But that program is more geared towards specifically building volume where somebody might say, Hey, I want to go from running 30 miles a week to running 
45 or 50 miles a week and I want to do that in a safe way and give myself plenty of time to do it, that's what we will do over the course of that program. And in many cases, we're building in strength as well. So they're able to incorporate a sustainable strength program while building mileage. And they're able to do that safely by giving themselves plenty of time to do it. So those are two different versions of base training, but both applicable at different times depending on the goal. Sorry to interrupt, but in that, in that second version where you're trying to build up your mileage and get them safely to a point that they can start off from a higher baseline, yep. how often do you do that with your athletes? Is that, is that a, a one-off where I just need to get this person up to 50 miles and I, I can start tweaking the quality and next year they can just have a shorter buildup or do you do that uh, seasonally? No, that's definitely going to be less frequent and it's going to depend obviously on the athlete's goals and their experience and so forth and maybe where they've been and where they're coming from. But I would say for most people, that kind of a block is probably something you might do once every three years or so to get to a higher plane, perhaps with your mileage to incorporate maybe strength in a way you never have and or maybe to come back from an injury where you're really needing to be patient in that comeback. You know, for somebody coming back from a, you know, an illness like you're describing where you're really having a hard time and it's taking a lot of time to build back, you might want to do that really gradually over the course of a 16-week block. But that's going to be definitely a rare thing that you're only doing here and there once every several years to kind of get to a new plane or to accomplish something specific versus that mini base period, you know, typically is going to be at the start of almost every single program after you have some downtime tapering post-race. So Chris, I, I apologize for interrupting here, but I had a question that kind of dovetails with this really well. Okay. With, with cycles of training, do you think, I think you just mentioned every three years or so you recommend maybe doing this base phase or if you're injured building back from it. Um, is it bad to go from one cycle of training to the next continuously? Like say you're even mixing it up, doing a marathon block, and then maybe taking time over, you know, a summer or something to focus on speed work and then work into another marathon block for the fall. I mean, are years of that type of cycles of training bad or good? Or is there something you should be looking at when you're planning like 18 months out, like, okay, well, I'll take yeah. a more significant downtime after whatever season you go through. So good question. Good follow-up. And we'll get back to your second question in a second, Jafar. But I think these two mm-hmm. things do, these two things do go together. Well, continuous training in general is a good thing. You know, when I first started out and running, I would, I would only train when I had a race sign, when I was signed up for a race, so I would sign up for a race, I would get that race done. And then I would take like three months off maybe where I ran just periodically here and there, but not really training. And then I, until I had signed up for the next race and then I would do that whole cycle again. And that was not, that was not a recipe for long-term success because every single time I restarted, I had to start from scratch and I wasn't getting the results that I wanted because of it. And so continuous year-round training is a good thing with some caveats because obviously you need to, as you mentioned, cycle so that you're doing different cycles, working on different things. You know, I get, I get a lot of runners that come to me and they're going from marathon cycle to marathon cycle and they're doing two or three marathons a year that way. And that can be a dangerous way to, conti- to train continuously because you're working the same system year-round and also marathons, you know, can be pretty hard in your body. So you're also beating yourself up perhaps a little bit more. 
So if you're cycling between a marathon cycle and a half marathon cycle and maybe a speed cycle, and you're doing that in, in, a, in a way that fits together throughout the year, that's a good thing. So that's a caveat is that you want to be doing different cycles at different race distances if you're training consistently. The other caveat is that obviously you need to be tapering properly and then coming off of a race in a way that you're not just trying to jump right back in. I like, I like for people if they are so motivated to run the week after a race, even after a marathon, typically I recommend the Wednesday after a marathon if it's happening that weekend, but I like you to just jump back into some easy movement, but then give yourself two to three weeks to build back in a very gradual way where you're not doing specific workouts, where you're just kind of running easy running, maybe some strides just to get the legs moving, but you're doing it based on feel and everything is really patient for those periods of time. Some people prefer, and a lot of elites do this, where they might take a two-week break, take it completely off. And that's okay too, if that's what you need mentally. I don't like more than two weeks if you take that approach because then you start to lose some of that base fitness and it becomes really more difficult to jump back. So that's another caveat is that you're cycling post-race in a way that allows you both physical and mental recovery. And if you do those two things, you know, you're mixing in your cycles in a way that makes sense and allows you to work on all different levels of, of the aerobic system. And then if you're cycling appropriately around races, then year-round training can be a very good thing. Sometimes I think you need to throw wrinkles in the plan so that you get some variety or something fun you know, so for me last summer doing that 50 mile race was that wrinkle where I was, you know, training hard, but doing very different training than, than, than I was in my road marathon training. And obviously I was out on the trails and doing a lot more variety in a way that I hadn't before. And that was something that kept me training, but gave me something really different to focus on for a block of time that gave me more than anything, a mental break from the road racing. And so I think you know, if you're training year round, you want to periodically throw in something kind of crazy and fun and different like that. So you stay mentally fresh, but otherwise, absolutely. Year round training is, is a good thing if you're balancing everything the right way. Great. Thank you. Jafar, your second question, what's the best workout you can do if you're only doing one workout for 5k up to marathon? And, and I would say that the the best thing you can do that, that gives you the most bang for your buck, if I could pick two things that you would do almost week in and week out, if that's all you could do, it's like you're on a deserted island and all you can do is one workout, uh, it'd be a tempo run. You know, tempo effort, which is right around half marathon pace, is really the sweet spot of aerobic training and that gives you the most bang for your buck. So if you're able to pair that with weekly strides, and lots of other easy running, that's going to get you a long way, regardless of what distance you're training for. Okay. Good question, though. I like it. All right, Jennifer, another one from you. This is a question I have, um, and the lawyer in me wants to come out and say, I, I want a yes or no answer. Um, <laughs> so I'll direct the witness <laughs> for a one word nice. answer. Okay. And it, it's just important in today's uh, virtual race world. Do virtual races or time trials count as PRs? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. 
I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no because, you know, I mean, PRs with an asterisk, maybe, you know, that would indicate you can do that on a race day. But the answer is no, just because, you know, if you look at the standards and, and I just go back to the rules, if, if an elite athlete were to try to get an official record or a PR that would be listed on, you know, the World Athletic site, then it's going to take, you know, certain rules and parameters for that race to have that record verified. And, you know, that's going to mean a certified course. That's going to mean certain other parameters. And so for me, in order for it to count, you've got to do it on a certified course in a race context. And so unfortunately, all of these PRs that people might be setting aren't official PRs in my head. But I do think you can throw an asterisk on there and say, look, this means I can run this if I can get it on race day. So hopefully it's a confidence builder for what you can accomplish when we do get to back to real racing. But, uh, but that's, that's my answer. No. What would you can I argue with you on that one? Sure. Devar, let's do it. Argue. <laughs> so uh, that would apply for, you know, Kipchoge's 159.40. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's not a world record. Uh, it was obviously staged. He had rotating pacers on a course that was designed for that. All that makes sense. But for the average person who is going out and trying to set a PR, they're trying to get the fitness. So a PR means I am now fit enough to run this distance in, in this time. We don't have a group of pacers who are blocking the wind for us when I go out and do a, a, a virtual you know, race. And the only reason we're running virtually is because we can't not run virtually. <laughs> it's, it's not that it was a choice. Uh, like I, I picked a downhill, uh, you know, 5K to just roll down a hill and call it a PR. Like we we just don't have races to go to, so I, I don't want I, I don't want you know an, an amateur who has a full time job and a family who, and who's homeschooling their kids to think that they that nothing that they do can, you know counts until we're back to in person <laughs> racing uh, for a professional absolutely yeah I mean you know one fifty nine forty is not the the world marathon record for a reason uh, there are circumstances that are that are not allowed uh, in record runs. But, well, but for the average person, that, that actually is your PR. Your, you need, it means you are at PR fitness. How about we put it that way? <laughs> like you don't lose that fitness that you get in trying to strive for that time. I think I agree with you, Jafar, but I'll, I'll even go a little more vague in it too. Like I look at Sarah Hall, I think ran a PR half marathon in Eugene by mm-hmm. herself out on some bike trails. I mean, that's her PR, right? Like if someone says, what can you run a half marathon in? I think she gets to say that number. Well, that um, that's different though, Jennifer. Sorry to interrupt, but she was on a, she was on a certified course. They put up, you know, the Eugene marathon and half marathon race mm-hmm. director put on a race for her. So it had five people and including her daughters They had a certified course They had timing mats, all the things. So in that case, it was tailored specifically to her, but it had all the parameters that a race would have. So I, I think it's a little bit different than looking at your garment. So Chris, would your one requirement be the certified course? Is that what we need to make these official? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think it's just that. I think you have to certify, you have to have a certified course and you have to have results that are generated by timing mat. Okay. So, I mean, here, I, I think you can absolutely celebrate these times, you know, but we, we did our virtual front door 5k and I did it on a course. Once we were meeting again in person, I think we were able to do our second one together and our third one together. 
you know, with appropriate measures and all of that, but we were doing it on this two mile loop course that the athletes had them do on a one and a half, basically one and a half loops and then some. And so I had it marked for them. And, and I had two runners that ended up running most of the race side by side. And one of their garments went off at one point, the other garment went off another half a block down, even though they were side by side the entire time and started together and so forth. And so then the big debate between the two of them was whose time or watch was right and where could they, you know, validate, validate the time for the purposes of submitting the results. And ultimately, you know, we knew we were on a measured course, so we knew roughly whose was right based on that. And so we made the choice. But it just, the garment unfortunately isn't as accurate as it needs to be. And there's a lot of factors that go into that in order for me to say, you definitely ran 3.11 miles. So while I think, yes, you should celebrate these things and, you know, even put a, you know, an asterisk on there and say, yeah, this is PR, uh, you know, virtual PR, whatever it may be, there's plenty to celebrate. But unfortunately, I think for, for official record keeping, I personally would not count it. So I'm going to just add one statement that I, I know you'll love because this was out of another episode that I was going to put on here and forgot your pet peeve episode. <laughs> I, I, I agree with the timing mat uh, statement. Uh, your garment doesn't mean much. It, it's going to be off by, by a decent amount. And the longer the distance, the longer it'll be off. I paced a friend to, on, on a 5K. He wanted to run under 25 minutes. So I, I you know, paced him to 25. I could cover a 5K in 20 minutes my PR is closer to 21 minutes. So the, the, I, I knew that I could, I could do it for him. We crossed the finish line and he ran another 20 feet. And I'm like, where are you going? Like, oh, no, my garment didn't reach 5K yet. It's like, you just crossed the finish line. Now. You're done. Like, That's your PR. You got it. Like, yeah. It's not on my watch yet. Uh, like, I got 20 feet to go. That's funny. Oh. Before I ran a 5k last, no, it'd be almost two summers ago. Um, that I didn't even hit three miles when I crossed the finish line, and I got so upset. <laughs> yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't. Your watch doesn't record it for you. Not, not on your watch, which didn't happen. Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. I love it. Good question. Let's let's go, Jafar. Another one. We'll get one more for you after that, Jennifer, and then we'll we'll wrap this okay. episode. So every training plan or coach, for that matter, who gives you a, a, a a training plan for whatever distance you're going for will always have uh, paces on there. Run your 5K pace here, run your easy pace here. What do you use for predictors for race time? So if someone's starting up, they're going after a new distance, uh, they're gonna run their first half, their first full. Uh, do you use online calculators? Do you have specific workouts you like to use to determine their ability before? Or do you run a time trial? Or do you just go off of previous race uh, experience and race uh, results? Good question. All of the above, really. To me, you know, when you're trying to figure out what the goal is for somebody, then you want to look at as many data points as possible to triangulate around what's possible for them. And so I'm looking at previous race results. We do typically a two-mile time trial, often early in the training, sometimes also late in the training to give, it a, to give us an indicator of fitness that you can use the calculators to then extrapolate out to other distances. We're looking, I like Probably my most, the most important thing though for me probably is workout results and performance. It's being able to, especially with some of our long run workouts for the longer races, being able to 
not necessarily nail half marathon pace when you're supposed to or nail marathon pace. But if I'm looking at two or three of those workouts, the body of them points to the fact that, you know, you're going to be able to sustain a certain pace for either 13.1 or 26.2 miles. So I'm probably most looking at that as a coach, but also triangulating those other factors. And oftentimes we're setting up those workouts based on a result they may have had in a time trial or a previous race as an indicator of what they could potentially run. And then they go try it out in a workout in, inside a long run. And that gives them a better sense for whether or not that's possible for the full distance. So it's all of the above. You got to look at all of those things. And then you also got to look at not only how did the workout go on paper, but how did it feel? You know, did it, was I on the edge of what I was trying to accomplish? You know, or was it manageable and, you know, right in my wheelhouse? You know, that matters as well. So I like to check in with runners after those and say, hey, you know, how was it? How'd it feel? And again, it doesn't mean you have to nail it perfectly, but you just want to see that the body of the work starts to point in the right direction. So good question. I like that one. Jennifer. Yeah. So hopefully this kind of goes in line with that last answer too. taking that idea of looking at the body of the work and taking it up to a much more macro level. How do you know when you've reached your lifetime PR or goal, or do you just keep trying? And Chris, I, I think that this might be personal to you too. I know that you've had marathon PR, you know, attempts and achieving them later in life than maybe you thought possible. How, how do you know when you're done? Well, I think first of all, you're never done <laughs> because there's, you know, always something to go achieve and whether it's run faster times or run different distances for a while, for me, I was, instead of focus on run training because I was traveling for work when I was in my previous career. I went into triathlon training because I was able to improve there because I wasn't very good at swimming and biking. And I was able to improve there without as much rigorous training when I couldn't put what I needed to in running in order to find new new thresholds there. So I think there's always a horizon you can go chase. And you know, I have a lot of runners even that get into running later in life that are still earning PRs, you know, well into potentially their 50s and 60s because they just got started a little bit later. So there's always a horizon to go chase. And I encourage you to everybody to always find that next goal. But as it relates to specifically times and whether or not you're hitting that ultimate plateau, you know, for me, I'm a 245 marathoner. I have been for the last, gosh, 20 years in one form or another. Uh, I think I've been fitter than that at times, but just don't have the race result to show it. But still believe at 40, 41 now that I can go get a sub 240. That's my goal. But where do you know you're starting to get? I think get to that plateau. I, I think it's when the off of consistent training over many years of time, you start to see those results increase or decrease by smaller and smaller chunks when you're when you start to measure prs in seconds versus minutes is when you know you're starting to get to the finer edge of what you can accomplish mm -hmm. i think there's also technically some some scientific measurement you could do with vo2 max tests in particular where you can kind of get a theoretical potential at race distances based on 
a VO2 max result, which can also give you another data point to look at. But but more than that, for most people, it's probably when you start measuring things in seconds versus minutes. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Thank you. One of the more humbling moments I had in my life was when I got my VO2 max tested when I was, I think, 24, 25. And I, re I realized that I wasn't an elite athlete. I already knew that theoretically, but you know, when when you don't, don't put too don't put too much into your VO two max though. I, I measure that all the time. Yeah, uh, it's not as important as you might think. And I, and I use the example for you know some of my friends were talking about this the other day. Uh, one of the highest VO two maxes ever measured was Lance Armstrong at his peak. Right. Uh, so and Lance Armstrong got that VO two max by cycling and by doping. Uh, he actually ran the New York City Marathon and barely broke three hours. Uh, True. I, mean, I know people who broke three hours in the New York Marathon who are not Lance Armstrong, and they just work with me and their physical therapist. Like, you know, VO2 max alone, don't, don't judge yourself <laughs> on it. I'm not. I'm just saying it's one data point. And in Lance's case, he wasn't as well trained for that New York Marathon as New York City Marathon as he was for his cycling. Yeah. And he probably has a ridiculous VO2 max regardless of whether or not he's doped. But, but yeah, I hear you. It's not the end all and be all. Yeah. Good questions, guys. I don't know. We have time for one more. Jafar, you want to throw one more out? Uh, sure. Let's end with a you know, meaning of life question. All right. Uh, so we've had almost a year now with no races. What would you tell someone who... I mean, to piggyback on in Jennifer's last question, who no longer PRs, or what would you tell someone, how would you explain how to approach running if we never get races again? Mm. Wow. That is a big in other question. Words, is, is it, if, you, if we suddenly found out that we never, I mean, this is not going to happen. I mean, uh, this is not, you know, the zombie apocalypse. But if we ever get to a point that, you know what, we are never going to have mass participation events again. How do you convince people? What would you say to someone to make them a lifelong runner? Good question. Yeah, I think the, well, first of all, I've been impressed by the ingenuity that has come out of this period as people have found ways to compete, even if they're virtual and technically I said they don't count, but they've found ways to compete, found ways to still engage, whether it be trying to run virtual races or those that have done these crazy, you know, uh, challenges where you run across the state of Tennessee, or we've got one going across the state of Texas, and they're just focused on that goal associated with a certain mileage. So it's been fun for me to see how how creative people have been about finding new goals that motivate them during this time. We've got local runners here who have done things like try to run every big hill in Austin, and that's been a milestone they've tried to accomplish. And so everybody's been really creative about finding new goals. And I think regardless of what the world looked like, there would be something like that you that you could go chase, whether it be in running or in some other fitness-based activity that you could find. And then it's just a question of what's exciting to you, what's fun, but also what gives you some sense of purpose that extends beyond just putting one foot in front of the other. And you know, and I think regardless of what the world looked like, we would be able to find ways to seek purpose through movement that would still be powerful. And and as a coach, I would be a part of helping people figure out what that looked like. So, you know, to me, that's that's the thing. And and you know, 
I will be very open with people when they first come to me about potentially getting into running or wanting to get a running coach. I say, look, I don't care how you move. You might find that running is the thing that gets you exciting, that brings you purpose, that gives you goals that you can get excited about that will get you up in the morning. But you may also find that running isn't the thing that gives you that. And so find your movement practice, whether that be cycling or swimming or yoga or orange theory or whatever it may be. Find your movement practice, find purpose in that, and then find milestones that can allow you to achieve and test it and press your boundaries and limits. And I think that that's going to be true regardless of whether we have races, regardless of whether running is your movement practice. And so that's where I try to encourage people. Yeah. That's insightful. Well, you guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for listening and being longtime listeners. It's always fun to put faces and voices to, you know, to people I didn't know, except through this journey that I've been on since December of 2016. And it's very cool and fulfilling for me as someone who has basically dedicated my life to trying to change people's lives through this sport. It's fulfilling to me to know that I've been able to do that for someone in Kansas City and for someone in Cleveland, even though I've never met you and never actually talked to you until now, person to person. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing your stories. Well, Chris, thank you so much for doing what you do and putting it out into the world for us to just consume. I, I think it's so neat that you do that and you find really interesting ways to tell stories and provide advice to people all across the world. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thanks for all you do, Chris. And thanks for letting us uh, hijack your program for a week. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Episode 200. Thank you guys. There you go. A conversation with two listeners, Jennifer and Jafar. Thank you so much to them for sharing and for investing so much time and helping me put this episode together. This is truly a love letter to all of you as listeners. I know I had just those two on, but truly this episode is meant to say thank you to everybody who's been on this journey with me. So again, thank you for that. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until episode 201, we'll talk to you next week.